Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Season 3 of Philosophy Casting Call, the podcast that features underrepresented philosophical talent. My name is Ilana Gauthier-Mamril, your host and producer. This season is very special to me because I got to fulfill one of the founding goals of Philosophy Casting Call, which was to reach out to people who are not officially academic philosophers. As someone who is trained as a philosopher, who identifies as a philosopher, yet who doesn't seem to match what a lot of people's ideas of what a philosopher is or does because of who I am or what my research practices are, I always wanted to amplify the practice of scholars who defy disciplinary boundaries and who end up doing philosophy without asking for permission. I'm also salaried for now. Hooray! And since the Center for Biomedicine Self and Society pays me, I can afford to work on this podcast during normal business hours, which for you, my lovely listeners, means that I get to deliver it weekly. I also chose to make season three even more explicitly a snapshot of my actual research relations. In past seasons, I reached out to guests across the world and outside of my regular research bubbles, and I'm honestly so happy I did. I learned so much from cold DMing folks on Twitter, and I met incredible, incredible people, some of which I still have a relationship with, and I have expanded my research horizon. But I'm kind of at a point in my career where I'm reflecting on my relational obligations as a researcher, and I wanted to produce something that felt more intimate and a reflection of my own practice of interdisciplinarity. I finished my PhD, I'm doing an interdisciplinary research fellowship right now. And I really, this is a question that is really animating me. So I'm bringing that investigation and opening it up to you. So this is why you'll notice that many guests on season three are people I also consider friends, or they might be my literal colleagues from the center, and therefore people I interact with weekly. Or they may have written a book that really influenced my research, and this was me kind of fangirling and getting to talk to someone who had a really big impact. This by no means is meant to be an exhaustive investigation of what interdisciplinary means, but I wanted to show you what it means to me at this point as I've developed it in relations and maybe prompt you to reflect on what your relations are, what interdisciplinarity means to you right now at this point. You might revise that in the future. I give myself the prerogative to revise it in the future as well. And I wanted to show you all and show myself what it will look like when I produce it in my particular web of relations at this point in my life. And of course, you, dear listener, are also a part of those relations. So don't hesitate to contact me, to email me at philosophycastingcallpod at gmail.com. And I will be happy to have conversations with you about what interdisciplinarity means. Okay, enough said. Well, no, I'm not going to apologize for being emotional because this actually means a lot to me. And this is the whole point of kind of giving you a snapshot of my research and what it looks like. And it involves me getting emotional about things. So I will not apologize. I will, however, give you a quick content warning that this episode contains non-explicit mentions of child trafficking, sexual assault, and suicidality. So if that's not something that you want to deal with at this moment, come back later. So without further ado, here's my conversation with my friend, the amazing crip, mad historian, disability activist, 
Hannah Sullivan Facknitz. Hi, Hannah. Welcome. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm legitimately so excited because I feel like this is the culmination of like <laughs> two plus years of crip kinship via the interwebs. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, held together with your amazing knitting, right? <laughs> and I was able to like create things and then send them knowing that they will be loved, which is something that is very special. I think in the kind of maker community, it's, I love making for myself, but not everyone is knit worthy and you're definitely knit worthy. Oh, thank you. That is such a high compliment. I know exactly <laughs> what is. you're talking about. You want it to be, you want it to be loved. You know, I used to be a fiber artist myself and knowing that a little kid somewhere still loves on an armadillo I once made is just such oh, a good feeling. That's so cute. But back to business. Can yes. you introduce, <laughs> this is what happens when you have your friends on. Can you introduce yourself to the listeners? Absolutely. Um, I'm Hannah Sullivan Fagnitz. I use they, them pronouns. And I'm a recovering academic, sort of, soon to be unaffiliated, and also a disability justice activist. I use that tentatively because to me that idea is very aspirational and maybe um, a difficult thing to claim myself and rather something that people have to decide other people like my kin and my community have to decide I am but largely that's sort of the sphere that I prefer to rotate in so and most of my work so far has been about academic ableism and then writing and scholarship wise I'm really focused on how settler colonialism and ableism interact and uh, create one another and reinforce one another. So you are a historian, you're trained in the academic discipline of history, but you do a lot of interdisciplinary work and you present in lots of interdisciplinary spaces. So to you, what does it mean to do interdisciplinary work? For me, interdisciplinary work has always been really intuitive. It's actually like makes far more sense to me than like disciplinary silos, um, the way that we often function, which I think a lot of people in recent years have felt, you know, there's a lot of talk about siloing and, and people being too in their own sandbox and, and things like that. But I think that um, there's something inherently neurodivergent uh, about interdisciplinary work. Neurodivergent folks, especially folks like me, I have ADHD and autism, are very good at seeing lots of things all at once and making observations that are sort of like this enormous constellation of things. But that relies for me on kinship networks and co-authorship and like deep, deep collaboration on scholarship that there is no, um, you know, we have the traditional acknowledgement section and things like that. But I recently helped finish an essay where we wrote a collective biography of the three of us rather than three individual biographies. So it's really about taking intersectional and interdisciplinary work really requires 
is something that cannot be done in isolation. One, because of the training that we have, right? Because we're trained in a disciplinary silo. That's the training we get. If we're lucky, we can do like a liberal arts MA or something like that, or um, uh, some, uh, you know, some sort of master's degree that's a little broader. But we have to rely on one another who are in different silos, right? Who have got those different trainings. And that to me is just the way that it has to be done. Otherwise, how interdisciplinary can it really be? Yes, we're complex beings and we embody lots of things, but um, it's the collaboration that is not just citation or acknowledgement. It's actual deep emotive and personal and community engagement with the work rather than just sort of, I read this and thought about it really hard and I'm going to give it a place of pride in the, in, in the essay or whatever I'm writing on. It's more, um, how do I relate to the human being themselves who wrote this and their community and what the work was politically for? Yeah. I'm so glad to hear you say that because my most rewarding academic projects have been in collaboration, have been co-writing, discussing ideas together, building projects together, organizing events where people could come together and really share not only their ideas, but their process. And through that, I can be so generative. And I believe, and I think I'm justified in thinking that academia especially in the humanities, rewards single authorship and rewards Mm -hmm. this idea of like everyone should pump out a book, whether or not you have an idea for a book or (laughs) this kind of things. And even in the STEM fields, there is this competitiveness of are you first author? Are you second author? And Mm -hmm. so the system is not designed to foster that. And yet, like, the ways that I want to engage with it are collaborative. And can you speak more about what you mean when you say the emotive side? Because that is something that is either not usually recognized or downright derided sometimes when we approach scholarly work. Oh, yeah, I for sure have gotten that. Well, I think I come at the emotive very much from Black feminist politics and also mad politics. The emotive is what goes most punished. And in some ways, that means that it's got to be really important. If, you know, if it's so punished, it belongs, it needs to be there. But I also think of the emotive as about relationality because relationality without emotion is not relationality there needs to be commitments to care and gentleness and space making and you know the beloved term access intimacy um there has to be a commitment to that even when we're reading people we're just reading people or encountering people um for me as a historian in the archive there's there's a level of For example, um, while I was doing some archival work in North Vancouver um, for my master's thesis, I came across, I had to go through a lot of city records that were just totally irrelevant because I was talking about urban planning, but urban planning of like only like two blocks of this, of North Vancouver, the, the area that surrounded Mission Reserve number one on the North Shore. But it meant that I encountered lots of other documents that just sort of got thrown in there. And one of them was 
what I've now come to understand after reading it several times was a trial record for a young girl who had been trafficked, her race uh, unnoted, but she had been moved from someone's house in Vancouver to someone in North Vancouver and then was sexually assaulted. And her trial record was shoved in with a bunch of like city block plans and blueprints. It was very strange. But to me, it was an encounter with the human that I wasn't able to have when I was looking at these, you know, giant blueprints of like, it was kind of cool to see people's handwriting on it and stuff. But like, there wasn't as much of an emotive connection. And I think for me, it was like, oh, the emotive belongs here, because I need to pause and bear witness to the fact that this girl really did get lost in many ways to many, many systems, both that were contemporary to her and that came after her. And so that my scholarship is actually enhanced by the fact that I paused and I found that. And it she did end up mentioned in my thesis where it's like, these are the encounters that you have. And these are the ways that my thesis sort of turned into a meditation on COVID as most things written during COVID did, but it's sort of a conversation about how doing history work as an activist can become extractive. One history work can be extremely extractive. A lot, most of academia by default is an extractive industry, but especially activist work, because you can go in thinking like, okay, where are the lessons that I can use, right? You know, where where's the usable bits? But her story isn't, there's not a lesson to it. Like, there's no way to take this. I mean, I'm sure there are ways, but with what I know about her, there's not a lot I can do with it, aside saying, I encountered this vulnerability in a period of my own intense vulnerability, tr- being disabled, trying to survive the pandemic. And that connects me to her. And that's important as a historian, especially as an activist historian who does community history. The emotional is actually what allows us to look at people in the past and thus people in our future as related to us and not separate to us. And for me, it also really requires me to be much more intentional about what will what I say do once it exists in the world. And my responsibility to others comes from my emotive relational connection to them. So the more I expand that, the better my scholarship gets because I'm protecting the people with it that should be protected and not protecting the people who shouldn't be. And that's something that I've recently discovered. I mean, I've always had emotive reactions to my Mm -hmm. philosophical work because I never saw it as separate completely from what it is to live life and live my life. But to some degree, reading Spinoza didn't affect me in the same way that reading accounts of disabled people do Mm -hmm. or right now I'm researching eugenics in the UK and there are certain things that I have to pause as you say and I have to take stock and I spoke to my line manager who's a sociologist and she was very receptive and she comes at it from a perspective of a social scientist it's like when you interview people sometimes it gets very heavy 
But what you just said, I think, is crucial to understand that even if you're dealing with documents, even if you're dealing with past things, even if these people are not in the room with you, there is still so much that A, we need to deal with in our legitimate emotional response and B, that that emotional response can be the catalyst to, as you say, be more mindful about why we're doing the work, for whom are we doing the work, what are our responsibilities. So just because you research history, it doesn't mean there are no responsibilities to people who live now and future people. Yeah, there's actually a um, piece that I encourage everyone to read, but especially historians or anyone who does historical work, which is most scholars, honestly, let's be honest, but it's by Jane Nicholas and it's called A Debt to the Dead, Ethics, Photography, History, and the Study of Freakery. And it was in Histoire Sociale in 2014. But she writes about um, her experience in the archive at the World Circus Museum that's in Wisconsin. And that museum houses thousands of photographs of quote unquote freaks. The study of freakery is quite rich. It's a very like, but it's a very specific moment in disability history. And some people sort of take it and apply it more broadly than it ought to be. But in this, essentially Jane Nicholas meditates on, do I reproduce this photograph of two young boys with a incredibly painful skin condition that they were called elephant boys and they're children there. I mean, one is barely out of toddlerhood. Right. And yet this photo is taken of them in their underwear and put, you know, on display, they themselves, their bodies were put on display. There's a whole history of child trafficking in the circus and, and of disabled children and things like that. But I always come back to this one quote that I'll, that I'll read from Jane Nicholas, which is seeing is not believing Seeing must be a question of ethics and an acknowledgement of the politics of representation that implicates the historian as witness to past vulnerabilities intimately connected to the present. And so reproducing that photo, not only, you know, depending on how and where it's reproduced, can not only reproduce the, the violence against those children, but continue to justify violence against disabled children today and into the future. I read that in 2019, which was my first year of my MA, and that has stuck with me for a very long time of like, this is how you go into an archive. Also, I've, I've had several Indigenous peers and colleagues that also talk about ethics of kinship in the archive, which has been incredibly valuable because for them... Indigenous folks in Canada, especially where I work, encounter their kin, literal kin, in the archive. Um, they are they are over documented, over pathologized, etc. And disabled people, in some ways, are the same because our medical documents end up in archives incredibly intimate details of our lives end up in archives. And so that sort of approach to everyone you encounter in the archive of understanding what vulnerability led them to be documented in a profoundly colonial capitalist institution. How do I honor the vulnerability that meant they were documented here and their agency within that? So yeah, and I think, I think you can't do that without the emotive. 
You just can't. It just like, how do you, you know, the emotive is political and this is political too. And you, you, you have to entangle the two or else you're not going to end up doing what you want to do, which is protecting your community um, and doing good work for them. Right. Um, so, yeah. I mean, maybe it's cynical of me, but I don't think every <laughs> historian and every scholar goes into it thinking about wanting to protect their community. So do you have an origin story of how you came at it from that perspective? Or did you encounter someone who taught you that this is a way you could approach history? I guess you just read an excerpt, but like Mm -hmm. my guess is that this is not the dominant culture within history departments. No, not at all. I think it's Hayden White has this, um, quote about like conquering or like conquering the archive and like it, it, like Hayden White in Tropics of Discourse is very oh plundering the archive that's what he says he says plundering the archive and like plunder my god is that a colonial and imperial term capitalist like holy crap like the the predominant approach in history there are a lot of people who are doing better now i will say that but the classical training that most of us get in history is about extractivism it is about treating the archive the way you treat the capitalists treat an oil well it's about taking whatever you need from it and I had that approach for a while um, because, you know, when I was an undergrad doing my undergraduate thesis, like, let's be honest, I was still somewhat of a child. Um, You know, when you're 21 and 22, you're still a kid, like um, your baby. But I very much had this like, oh, well, this is the story I want to tell. So every piece of evidence that helps me tell that story, I'm going to use, right? And a lot of that, because I was a very junior researcher and really learning how to research was, I found a lot of Uh, sources by going into other people's primary sources, right? And so they were primary sources that had already been sort of uh, discovered, which is another real problematic term in uh, archives. Um, But we're sort of already circulating in the scholarship on, I was writing on world's fairs and indigenous performance there for my undergraduate thesis. But I started to, as many disabled people do, uh, well, I didn't want to do disability studies or disability history, or I just wanted to be a historian who studied like circuses and world's fairs and like plotted along. And, you know, that wasn't, I was always an activist, right? But I didn't want to do disability in my scholarly life because I'm disabled. I have to be an activist in order to get access to anything. And I just kind of wanted a job that wasn't that, (laughs) right? And that was the goal. But I came in and I had to do so much labor just to get basic access and to have a basic understanding of where I was coming from to value the many things that I was bringing in that so much square one work because nobody, I think there's one person at my institution that does disability studies and they're like in, I want to say they're in like the business school. And I'm like, uh, there are lots of graduate students, but not, there aren't supervisors. And so I ended up doing 
doing a lot of that. And then the thing that I kept encountering in books that I was reading for like my historiography class or my other um, my other classes um, was several books that used medical records. And a lot of I was the oldest member of my cohort, a lot of my cohort were early 20s, I was 28 when I began mine. So like, not like ancient, I hope not ancient. But I was I felt it I definitely felt a bit of a a gap there in life experience. Also, like I always feel a gap with non disabled people because I spent most of my 20s almost dead. So like, it's just a very different experience, right? (laughs) Yeah, like, there's some things we can relate on but also like you know the whole like lingering near death thing really changes you and my last Um, birthday I was saying to everyone I'm 30 going on 77 (laughs) yes exactly exactly I'm like that's me I just don't I don't even know how to put an age on it anymore you know because it's just so different from how non-disabled people move through their life so I really felt that and I was saying things about like is it ethical that they use these medical records? Like, and for me, it was so profoundly terrifying because there are laws that say like medical records can't be unsealed until like 70 years after the person's death. But I don't want any of my medical records unsealed ever. Like I'm not an object of study. Yeah. Right. And I'm a person living in a historical moment. And I know that historians do not treat people whose records are in the archive as people. They encounter the records as records and not as an impression of a life. In fact, I believe that is what we're encouraged to do because this is Mm -hmm. the objective. This is the scientific way to approach it. And I have a similar reaction to what you're saying because I remember being a teenager and having doctors literally talk to each other while standing over me while I was lying on a gurney being like, we've never seen this before. Maybe we should take a scan. Maybe we should send it to Vancouver. Like, this is a special case. Sit down, stand up. No, bad girl. No, stand up. And it was like being treated like an object shapes you for life. Oh, like absolutely. This idea that I was a case, that I yeah. was an object to be dissected, to be discussed with your colleagues, a is absolutely mortifying. Yeah. Oh, and you become a thought experiment too. Mm-hmm. You know, like your life becomes a thought experiment that people put in front of graduate seminars to discuss. And I'm just sitting here like, holy crap. You know, because and and it goes back to this young girl that I encountered in the archive of like her most vulnerable moment is preserved a hundred years after it happened. This was early 20th century documents for me, someone with no relation, no context, no ability to place within any sort of like framework of understanding for me to read about how she was sexually assaulted by who they thought was her uncle and of course they don't say it's sexual assault they they say she's a whore right you know but she i i think she was 11 or 12 
And it's like, yeah, sure. And you encounter that and some people see it as evidence, a primary source that you could scan and put before an undergraduate history class and say, write a primary source analysis of this, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, one, I hope that we choose far more banal sources for those exercises, but not everyone does. And to be a problem in perpetuity, you know, a question to be solved is just so violent. Mm -hmm. And you know, because like for me, like my medical records tell a pathologized history of me, but they are the most cogent records of my life that exist. I realized I was doing this, but I, ever since I became very ill, I counter archive myself. So I actually, um, I have a bit of hoarding tendencies, but the things that I hoard are my journals, um, little bits of paper and ephemera from my life that are like cards from friends that I got and tell stories of like the things that were not my blood work and mm-hmm. the secondhand information my doctors put in the notes, right? But the thing that most disabled people have as their most cogent footprint in a medical capitalist bureaucracy are their medical records. And that ends up being the only way that our stories get told when disability is not solely a medical thing. And so that has, those records have profoundly shaped how the medical humanities go about things. I've been shunted into being a medical humanities historian because I do disability work. And I'm like, disability is not inherently medical. You know, like actually my problem is that I'm so tired of being pathologized that every single component of my being has some sort of value attached to it with pathology that like, no, actually the counter storying that we have to do is that the pathology is secondary, even tertiary to what it means to live a disabled life. The more important things to know is actually how violent the encounters are with medicine, right? Like that's actually the thing that you should know, but none of that is recorded in my medical documents, right? If it does get recorded, it's going to be like hysteria, right? And so I think that that has profoundly shaped how I go about doing history, even when it's not medical humanities stuff. It's like, no, like a lot of people have had no say in how they end up in this archive. And I'm not going to take any more agency away from people. Mm -hmm. And that has really curtailed the documents available to me. You know, operating on an ethic of consent is can be very difficult when you're a historian because of how archives work. Thankfully, I I have some, uh, I use the McKenna McBride Commission that has really, really rich indigenous testimonies in it. And that is like very obviously consensual in a sense Mm -hmm. of, you know, these are uh, recorded statements of indigenous folks who came to speak to the commission and knew they were being recorded, right? For posterity and even wanted to be recorded because, you know, Canada does not do well by its indigenous people, but still history as a discipline and the structure of the archive transgresses consent so consistently that I really think if we, if historians had to go through ethics reviews, we would fail all of them. Like it's just not, it's not possible to, because of how we have structured the discipline to do real consensual ethical work because of how people get recorded by dominant culture. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't touch those things and shouldn't do history, but we have to think a lot harder about it. But hopefully what you're doing is 
testifying that it is possible to do it a different way. And when you say it's difficult, I think it's also important to maybe rethink why we do research and why we are scholars, why it is a practice that we choose to engage in. And it is not always, at least it's not for me, about being a breakthrough in my discipline or coming up with the theory of everything or having the blockbuster academic book <laughs> within my very small niche. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and I think once you free yourself from that pressure, the idea of like, yes, I will do this work that has its limitations, but it is contributing to a larger project. It is in its own way saying it is possible to not reproduce unthinkingly structures mm -hmm. of harm. So, I mean, I'm very grateful for your work and I encourage everyone else to look it up. But before we go, I did want you to say briefly, you mentioned that you work on academic ableism mm -hmm. and together with your colleague, Danielle Lorenz, you coined the term academic crip doula. And I would just like you to explain a bit what that is, because I think that people who are familiar with the work of doulas probably have never thought about it in this way. Yeah. And it actually really ties into how I do history work of like, it's about like generational change, but in the discipline, right? And so crip doula is a term that Stacey Park Milburn coined, um, our beloved ancestor who passed away from um, medical neglect during the, the pandemic, coined to talk about how disabled people help people be birthed into their new lives as disabled. Because everybody, well, almost everyone becomes disabled. If you don't become disabled, it's likely because you died very, very, very quickly, very young, you know, you're going to experience disability in some capacity in your life. And for me, I really had that modeled by Heather McCain here in, in Vancouver, who uh, founded Creating Accessible Neighborhoods. But Heather the way they work has really been to, they've lived here for a long time. So they know which hospitals are better for what. They know whether or not the access and assessment center is safe for someone like me with CPTSD and ADHD, or if I should go to someone else. They know the ways that paperwork works and the weird, like, you know, the little trivia that you have to know of, like, no, actually, you do need to check that box, even though you have no idea what that statement means or anything like that, right? And it's even like less bureaucratic than that of like, modeling gentleness, modeling, prioritizing the self, modeling a refusal of overwork and human value as productivity. And so that's really the way that Stacey Park Milburn described. And then for me, Heather McCain modeled being a crypt doula. And so with Danielle Lorenz, who I've written a few things with, we wanted to think about our work as graduate students, how we both got forced into doing disability work. Danielle works uh, is working on their PhD at the University of Alberta in education. And both of us have had to teach our departments how to do accessibility. We've had to introduce the professors we TA for to like the basic fundamental human rights of disabled students, right? And most importantly, we have found ourselves mentoring 
other disabled students. But we also wanted to think about how do we refuse the traditional model of mentorship in academia, which is incredibly hierarchical and makes mentorees very, very vulnerable. Um, I've very much experienced that with certain mentors I've had. Um, and so the way we tried to think about academic cryptula is like, yes, I'm someone who I get emails from disabled students of like, how do I ask my doctor to fill out these forms? And like, what do I need them to do? But also like trying to model in my scholarly public life, this ethic of it doesn't matter. Nothing is more important than your life, than your well-being, than your ability to thrive and stay alive, right? There is no paper, no grade, no scholarship, no class, no degree worth your life. Because for disabled students, it is life or death. Like, actually, for a lot of students, um, uh, Sarah Madoka Curry, who's a very dear, dear friend of mine, is working on their dissertation about how, like, even for non-disabled students, the culture of suicidality in academia is incredibly dangerous, especially for international students and disabled students. And that there is actually a culture that encourages suicide in academia. And so... Really, being an academic crypt doula is about trying to be a mitigating factor, trying to be someone who can come in with quiet and gentleness and care and a certain amount of clarity in a system that is designed to be as opaque as possible and to keep disabled people out. Jay Dolmich writes about this in Academic Ableism, but it's very much about extracting knowledge from disabled body minds, medicine, occupational therapy, social work, a lot of social sciences, history and the medical records, you know, extracting knowledge from our body minds as well as other folks' body minds. It's not just disabled people, but for academic ableism, it's real focused on disabled people. And then denying disabled people any space as people in the academy. We are only data, not scholars, students, staff, whatever, collaborators, especially. We are not collaborators um, in research about ourselves. The knowledge is taken from us and then computed elsewhere. And so being an academic crypt doula is, was really my, I can't survive the, the sort of gauntlet of trying to get a uh, job or even a PhD in academia, but I love teaching. I love students and I love disabled people. And so uh, my work that I continue to do for free as an academic crypt doula is really just about like disabled people deserve to be there and to have the chance to experience what other folks do. Um, Academia has tremendous potential to be transformative and wonderful and do incredible things in the world, but it needs disabled people and other folks, queer, BIPOC, non-North American or European, right, um, folks in the academy to do these things. And my job, even though I've, I've failed to overcome these barriers, is to help others come up against those barriers a little better. I may still be standing at the bottom of that wall, 
and I may be stuck there, but hopefully someone can stand on my shoulders, right? And that's really what I dream of my work being. Whether or not it's actually that is another question, but that's the that's the aspiration, right? And a lot of disability justice work is about dreams and the future and aspiration of what a beautiful world we could create together in collaboration like that. I also believe that the goal is becoming... Yes. The aspiration yes. is not something in the future mm-hmm. unconnected to us. We are mm-hmm. making it happen imperfectly in yes. a nonlinear way. Yes. But we are making it happen. But, yes, yeah. exactly. It's the now. It's mm-hmm. it's the journey, not the destination to be cliche. But that <laughs> that is that yeah. is justice and liberation. That yeah. liberation and justice are processes and mm-hmm. not fixed points. You know, what is liberation today is not going to be how our descendants in 30 years describe liberation. And that's fantastic. Like, that's a good thing that these things will change and grow and morph beyond us. And like, my goal as an activist historian is to not be needed in 20 years. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what I want to not be needed as an academic crypt doula to just like for to not be needed in you know whatever time to come also because we're tired yes oh my god i want a nap please let me go to bed oh my god (laughs) but before you go to bed um what are you reading or watching or playing right now that is giving you joy um i've been watching a lot of like b well not even b grade but just like old blockbuster action movies that i missed in my (laughs) teenage years and like early 20s like i've been watching i just started fast and the fast and furious um i knew you were gonna uh, say that for some reason Yep. Um, And then also I watched John Wick the other night. So I've just sort of been like uh, uh, letting myself watch these gratuitous over the top, you know, please don't take away my abolitionist membership card, right? Um, I don't actually believe in any of this like violence or, or, um, you know, over militarization, right? But there's just something so preposterous about it that it and and so unlike my life, you know, right? Because like yep. with disabled life, you see yourself reflected in a lot of media in very not good ways. Um and with with action movies, they're just so preposterous that I don't I can turn that part of my brain off. So uh, if you haven't ever watched John Wick, um, trigger warning, the dog does die in the very beginning and it's really upsetting, but it's just like very over the top and probably the movie that is most efficient at making you hate the bad guys because they kill his dog, you know? Like, um, but uh, th- It's a cheap a shot, but it works. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so, and it's Keanu Reeves, you know? Like one of know, Hollywood's right? golden boys that we just, yeah. we just love because he's a big old cinnamon roll that plays these like brutal, yeah, he, brutal he's characters. the original pretty boy like <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah with one facial expression but you know um yeah but so. he's there for yeah, all the hollywood been... hurt comfort <laughs> oh <laughs> they absolutely. batter keanu reeves and then we get to like mm-hmm. hold him and be like it's okay keanu exactly okay. exactly we love him so yeah um yeah i've been trying Wait. to uh just do all of that and yeah survive the pandemic that's still ongoing it's not over (laughs) i know i'm i've been having a flare-up lately and i've sprung for the acorn tv membership and i'm watching all of the garbage like bakery murder mystery antique store owner murder mystery librarian murder mystery shows (laughs) those are so so good those are so good 
<laughs> I mean, also, don't take away my abolitionist card, but <laughs> I don't I know, support I know. the police. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I just need the Great British Baking Show to come back, right? Because, like, that is... I saw a tweet that said, uh, I hope these four people are ready to carry my entire emotional well-being for the fall <laughs> um, from the Great British Bake Off. It started here, but I haven't tuned in because I was burnt a couple of years ago when they did a very racist quote-unquote Japanese oh. week and oh no I was new to Twitter mm-hmm. and unfortunately one of the tabloids here took my tweet and like I got oh. lots of horribleness from random strangers telling me I didn't have the right to exist and to reproduce which ties back into British tabloids are the worst Jesus yeah. oh yeah but you know again disabled life it's so hard to consume media without it being like a thing you know of not yeah, being even able, the most I mean, wholesome joy giving thing has been taken away from me yeah well i watched um the uh uh, uh oh i can't remember what it's called but basically there's an- another mutant tv show on netflix and it's like explicitly about genetically modifying humans to get rid of all disease and i'm like mm-hmm. that's eugenics <laughs> so yeah i mean i don't everywhere. know if you- and, like I don't know if you watch Orphan Black. Uh, yes, I have. Yeah. Yes. Which I, I do enjoy that show. But at some point they're like, mm-hmm. we are eugenicists. Are you okay with that? And I was like, no. No. We are not. Yeah. yeah. Well, but and anyway. I, I think this this new show on Netflix is proof of how how much eugenics have become mainstream during during the pandemic. Like, Which means so. my research is super relevant. But that's okay. Uh, which sucks so, sometimes. I know. I know. So is there anywhere on the internet that people could find you and or your work? Yeah, probably the best place to find me is Twitter. Um, I'm under uh, Hannah N instead of and Hannah N the wolf um, because I have lupus um, and lupus means wolf in Latin. Um, and then you can also find me on Instagram, but I'm less uh, less sort of on there and my website is also on my twitter so if you wanted to like send me an email or something or get in touch especially if there are students who listen to this and are like oh crap i don't know how to do this thing um that's sort of what i do um and i sort of let people i let other people pay me to do that stuff right i take donations to do that stuff for free for students so if there are students listening who need some help need some advice need to you know have a professor they're struggling with or can't figure out some sort of bureaucratic nonsense sense or you know just need someone to tell them that they belong and that they deserve to be there i'm you know i'm around um so again that's hannah and the wolf at uh, uh, on twitter uh which is uh i may be a little too open on but you know that's what twitter is <laughs> you're you're self-documenting exactly it's my it's my archival tendencies so <laughs> <laughs> hooray for archives well, thank yes. you so much for coming on. This was wonderful. We could keep talking forever, mm-hmm. but uh, we both need a nap now. So, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. So. so, yes, thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. Thank you so much, Hannah, for giving me your time and your wisdom. I feel so energized after this conversation, and I hope you do too, dear listener. As usual, I will link Hannah's socials and recommendations in the show notes. 
But if I can sneak in a cheeky wreck of my own, I want to tell anyone and everyone who is even remotely interested in anti-colonial and indigenous research methodologies to read Pollution is Colonialism by Max Liberon. That is all. So if you have any questions, you can email me at philosophycastingcallpod at gmail.com. And you can subscribe to Philosophy Casting Call and leave me a five-star review if you can. Follow Philosophy Casting Call on Twitter and Instagram at philocpod. That's P-H-I-L-O, the letter C-C-P-O-D. And you can find all episode transcripts on my website at www.elenagotiermemorial.com. And if you feel like supporting the podcast and becoming a monthly donor, I also have a ko-fi.com link in the show notes. Bye!